0: Welcome to this TOUCH podcast activity, which has been recorded for TOUCH Oncology. This podcast aims to bring you expert insights from a multidisciplinary team on the use of immune checkpoint inhibitors in solid tumours. This activity is funded by an independent medical education grant from MSD. This activity is jointly provided by USF Health and TOUCH IME. In this podcast, a medical oncologist and an oncology nurse discuss the current and upcoming indications for immune checkpoint inhibitors in patients with solid tumours and review general considerations for their use.
1: Welcome to the Touch IMEs. So I'm uh, Ken Kato uh, from National Cancer Center Hospital. I'm a medical oncologist uh, for the upper GI uh, cancers. I am joined today by uh, Ms. Tara Hari, uh, an oncology nurse at the Royal Medicine NRIS uh, Foundation in Sutton, UK. In this section, uh, we will consider current and upcoming indications for immune checkpoint inhibitors in surge tumors and uh, general consideration for, for their use. The here is a treatment landscape for the switch tumors. Blue uh, for the FDA uh, by the FDA and BMI and PMDA. So we have many uh, image checkpoint The targets of the uh, PD one and PD one and cdl four. And for the uh, the many indications uh, for the various cancer uh, types. Right now we use the uh, the these drugs. Not only for the uh, metastasis cases, but for the recently, the the, the indication of the ICS was expanded to the uh, local cases. For example, the uh, neoadjuvant chemo or immunotherapy for the lung cancer, and the uh, adjuvant use for the melanoma and the uh, the renal cell carcinoma. And in uh, uh, many of the uh, phase three studies was, uh, upcoming, the uh, combination with the another every checkpoint inhibitors, uh, such as TG uh, uh, antibody, and actually antibody right now. So uh, in combination with uh, um, uh, radiotherapy with uh, every checkpoint inhibitors, also developed for the some uh, types. Okay, so uh, we, that, uh, the indication of the MCH-point inhibitor will be uh, expanded uh, more and more and we expect that uh, the increasing of the efficacy with uh, the point inhibitors. Okay, so uh, Tara, so do you use the MCH-point inhibitors for the patient? So how do you consider about the, the uh, education uh, for the, uh, of the, for the inhibitors uh, for the, each patient?
2: Um, so my background um, is in clinical trials um, and I've primarily specialized in breast cancer, head and neck cancer and non-small cell lung cancer and within that, obviously within clinical trials, you have a, a remit of, of specific patients that you're due to treat. Um, however, um, our main criterion, just generally, and now that it's moved out, a lot of the troops have moved out of trial, is to consider their performance status, just assessing options for um, whether they've got a P, what their PDL1 status is. So we would send their their um, tissue material off to the laboratory, and if they have a PDL1 score of above one, we would consider them for immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy. Um, the higher the score, um, generally. It is seen that they'll have a, a better response to treatment, um, so we're very honest with patients about that. If they had a score of less than one, that we wouldn't attempt to start them, and then we would also just review their their comorbidities and any other medications that they may be on, in line with giving them the best and opportunistic opportunity for commencing the therapy.
1: So, how do you uh, use for the uh, the patient with the lower performance status? So. Uh, do you, uh, uh, you saw the, uh, for example, the P- lower PS, PS two or three patients?
2: Yeah, I mean, we, as you touched upon, um, initially it seems that these drugs were landscaped for patients with advanced and metastatic disease, which obviously could, well, not obviously, can at times come with um, higher risks of a lower performance status. And you did find in the in the more phase one trials that patients of performance status of two were encouraged to go onto the trial, um, but as you got we got more knowledge um, to that it became more a naught to one, naught to two performance status essentially, um, because actually comparatively compared to chemotherapy, where these treatments are much more targeted, actually the side effect profile was less. So a patient who previously had chemotherapy, for example, may have had um, a very altruistic. Response to chemotherapy felt very unwell. Had lots of admissions to hospital, whereas the immune checkpoint inhibitors were actually offering patients much better quality of life, less less need hospital admissions, etc. So actually, that that garnered that our performance status didn't have to necessarily be zero, but you could be treating up to two and three at points.
1: Okay, yeah, thank you. So I will. So performance status is very very good. Uh, factor for use of the ICIs, I think. So uh, what is the contraindication to the ICIs uh, of the patient?
2: Um, so I think we would look, again, at performance status. We would look at any concomitant medications that they're taking. So if a patient was on high-dose steroids, for example, because that can um, dampen the immune response, you wouldn't want a patient to be on high-dose steroids before taking these inhibitors primarily is it could reduce the impact that they can have on the tumour. Um, equally, things like if they've got active infection, et cetera, you wouldn't want them to, to be taking these therapies. Um, another contraindication is just that they can actually attend for the therapies on the, as per schedule because they are quite time-sensitive treatments and you just want to ensure that you're doing the best by the patient um, by giving them in a timely approach.
1: So how about uh, the biomarkers the biomarker? So do you consider the biomarker to indicate the uh, ICIs? ICS?
2: Yeah, so we yeah, we would certainly look at the PDL one status. Um and if it was above one, then we would consider treating with an immune checkpoint inhibitor. If it was below one, then we wouldn't consider that and would be quite honest with the patient about that. I think there's there's a lot in the media about immune checkpoint inhibitors at the moment and Um, when our patients are more informed than they ever have been in terms of access to the internet, access to publications Um, and -hmm. a lot of these people, a lot of our patients are seeing these as revolutionary drugs that are going to certainly improve if not create cure for their tumours and I think you just have to be very honest with them that actually if if you don't have this mutation within your tumour that actually this isn't, the medication should be taken we'd be giving you unnecessary side effects for very, very limited benefit.
1: Okay. Yeah. So uh, it is a uh, very, uh, I didn't need to consider the biomarker to, uh, uh, to make a decision uh, to think about the, the risk way, far or the treatment, I think, I Thank you. So, and then so uh, we uh, sometimes expen- experience the shoot progression during the uh, uh, chemotherapy with the uh, ICIs. And as you know, the shoot progression is uh, increasing the size of the tumor. Uh, so, maybe the, uh, the early stage of the, uh, the beginning of the uh, I mean, checkpoint inhibitors so no, but it, uh, uh, we should distinguish the pseudo the progression to the, uh, the real progression so uh, Tara, so how do you distinguish the pseudo progression uh, to the true progression
2: yeah um it, this can often be a difficult concept for patients to quantify in that they've often been told if your disease is responding to treatment then your disease will shrink um, so actually the fact that they're told that their disease could get larger before it gets, begins to decrease, that should be quite a difficult concept for them to, to understand. So I think it's important that patients are informed of that before they start treatment, just to give them a realistic expectation about what could occur. Um, pseudoprogression is generally accompanied with an improved general condition. Um, so actually you find that patients are often feeling physically. Better, um, they may have improvement in their in their biomarkers, in their um, tumor markers. So, like CEA's, um, for example, um, alongside um, their imaging, um, we often use utilize the imaging to and show the patient visually what's actually happening. So, for example, on a PET scan, um, when you've got active disease, it can show up very bright, um, like a white light on the screen. And actually when they're responding to treatment, actually the white light can disperse, but you can still see the active outline of quite a large tumor. Um, so it just shows them that the activity is less, um, but the tumor has just, uh, this pseudo progression has been causing the tumor as a consequence of the therapy. Um, and I think it's just important that um, retrospective image analysis is also used, just showing them prior compared to now, especially as their treatment trajectory goes on. Cause generally, Patients are taking these treatments for, as a, as a minimum, up to 24 months. Um, so actually they can, if they've got visuals of how things were and how they are, now actually that can help them ascertain actually what goes on with, and how the tumors respond in this type of treatment. Um, where I did work in clinical trials, often biopsies were required on an ongoing basis. Um, and patients are very responsive that to just know how their their tumors were were behaving um and that is useful just although it's invasive um and liquid biopsies would be a great option in the future it just can also differentiate whether tumor is still active or not
1: so uh, what is a proportion of the patient who experience a uh, shoot operation so so that is a uh, depend on the cancer type so uh Tara, do you have any uh, uh, experience for the shoot operation so yeah.
2: Uh, yeah. Um, um I would I would call upon more my, my head and neck experience to be honest. Um they there were, there was a majority I would say would demonstrate pseudo progression before they would um show response. But generally they mostly came with an improved general condition so they all felt better. Um, their performance status was better, their ability to do things, their ability to go back to work, et cetera. Um, Things that they weren't able to do before starting the medications was improved, but they themselves could feel that there was what they would describe as more pressure in the tumor. So especially where you've got them, like the, the tumors that would arise in the neck and there's like a very limited movement of the skin in that they would feel this swelling happening. Um, but although they felt better, they could still feel this pressure and they still felt like the tumour was growing, which is a difficult thing to quantify for them. Um, so you'd kind of reach the nine-week nine, nine week mark, um, post-three cycles of treatment, that you would do the imaging and you'd notice the progression, and then you'd do one in a further eight to nine weeks later, and actually things had reduced. Um, so yeah, it was quite notable in, in head and neck tumours especially.
1: Yeah, uh, okay. thank you for many uh, helpful information. So it's now time to close the decision. So uh, thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this Touch podcast. You can access more content on this topic on Touch Oncology at www.touchoncology.com. Don't forget there are three other chapters in this series. So please listen in for further insights from the multidisciplinary team.